The Space Show is presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. On this evening's The Space Show, French astronaut Thomas Pesquet describes his life and career and takes us on a tour of the International Space Station. And we have episode 24 of our Planet Earth series, and that's with Chris Bosshausen who composes music not unlike the music that uh, Sandra was talking about. And we have an asteroid poem to mark the launch of the Lucy mission to the Trojan asteroids, where it is too cold to play. <laughs> Pun intended. Right. Now, Thomas Pesquet is a French... European Space Agency astronaut making his second sojourn aboard the International Space Station. At present, he is commander of the station. Well, this evening we present a profile of this very popular astronaut. In fact, this is how popular he is, as described by Philippe Baptiste, the chairman and chief executive officer of the Centre National d'Etudes Spatiales, that's the French National Space Agency. Uh, I'd like to mention another point. It's not really from the agency, but as a French guy, I mean, we are so proud of Thomas Pesquet, who is up there. So, and he's an astronaut uh, on, well, at ISS with, with, uh, with NASA, and, uh, and uh, he's very, very popular in France and in Europe, I guess, and he's really, um, he helps a lot to, to explain, I mean, all the interest of space for all citizens. So he's a very important guy for us. Uh, just before Thomas went into space, the Kármán project spoke with him. And we're going to play part of that interview now. And one of the first things that the Kármán project wanted to know was, what was your childhood like? So the first moment on ISS, I remember it very, very vividly. I think the um, I don't have any medical background, but but um, my theory, my really cheap theory, is that the uh, uh, the more you're invested um, sentimentally in a, in a moment, the more you're going to remember it. I mean, it's kind of obvious, I think. Um, so I've got very very clear memories, and really the feeling I've been I've been trying to explain or to recapture the feeling. Um, and what happened is um, the moment you you selected as an astronaut, you you pretty much have in the back of your head, um, whether you're aware of it or now, you have a list of things that can go wrong. Because if you look at it, um, like everything, the probabilities are against you. Everything is against you because it's extremely difficult to, to, to go to space. Um, so really, you need a series of small miracles um, to end up in space. And, and so being selected is one, but that's not, that's not the only one. And there's going to be several others. Um, that you have to make happen or just, just you know, there's not, not much you can do about it. You have to be in good health. Well, you have to get good vision. There's nothing I can do about it. Either you have it or you don't. It's just luck, pure luck. Um, so there's this. And then, you know, the station needs to be um, still working properly. So nobody should break anything. The station shouldn't be in a bad shape. You know, the countries still need to cooperate because otherwise the DISS project is over. Um, your health, your everything. So, so, um, so you constantly build a list of things that could go wrong, but also because it's your job. Because I think a job of an astronaut is mostly to adapt to the situation, and if something goes wrong, to fix it. 
Um, so, because when everything goes well, I mean, you don't have much to do. It's always the same. It's like a pilot. When everything is completely, entirely nominal, then, then I mean, thank God, you, you don't have that much to do. But when things start going wrong, then, then you have to take action. Um, so, yeah, so you have this list in permanence in, a, in the back of your head. And then as you get closer to the launch, um, that list becomes smaller and smaller. Um, and then, so you pass the milestones one by one. You're validated by the medical commission. Um, the, you, you were the backup crew, and now you suddenly become the prime crew. Um, and then your rocket is assembled, and then you, you, you get your final training, you qualify, you've got all the qualifications, um, et cetera, et cetera. You pass the quarantine, you, and then you get closer. Obviously, the rocket ride to space is a big one because it could, it could seriously go wrong, and most of the time it doesn't. Um, and then you're in space, but you're not quite there yet because you have to you have to rendezvous the space station in your Soyuz. So also lots of things can go wrong. And eventually, you do the rendezvous, you do the whole process, you do the docking, you you equalize the pressure between the hatches, you and then you open the hatches, and then you get to the space station. And for the for the first time in my life, and I didn't I didn't realize it at the time, but now I know because I've thought about it. Uh, the, for the first time in my life, in in the last I don't know seven, eight, nine years. I had nothing. I didn't have that list of things that could go wrong in the back of my head. I had nothing. It couldn't go wrong. I was there. I was there. Nobody could take it away from me. And and um, and I think my way to deal with it was I always kind of assumed that something was going to go wrong because I didn't want to believe in it too much. Because if it doesn't happen, it's so it's heart wrenching. You're, you're destroyed. So I, I kind of protected myself by saying, yeah, you know, it's not really going to happen. I'm going to pass all the qualifications. Everything is going to be fine. But it's not really going to happen because something go- is going to go wrong. It wasn't that clear, but I think that's what I did. And then suddenly it just hit me when I was in space. I was like, nothing can go wrong now. And I got I got all the happiness uh, that I didn't have for the past seven years uh, in just one extra shot that that lasted probably two, three, four days. I don't know if, you have, if I look at the pictures of myself at the beginning of the mission. I'm just so happy. Um, so that was a good feeling. Looking forward to um, experiencing it again. So the question now is, how did Thomas Pesquet, the French astronaut, develop an interest in astronautics? Yeah, the origin of, of, of me wanting to become an astronaut, I think I don't, I don't have some kind of a founding moment that, uh, uh, that people like to see. But I remember playing with my dad, um, and he was probably the first one um, kind of bringing up those topics, and, and uh, he built me a a nice little spacecraft uh, with um, cardboards, uh, and I would stay inside. It was nothing. There was just brew um, some dials and gauges, and I stayed in it forever and ever. There was also a couple, I think, pillows in there. Um, so that's the first thing I remembered. And after this, I just, you know, by myself, I was getting more and more interested. I was, I was trying to get some information. I was, I was buying some, um, some periodics at the time. I was talking to the people, and then I steered. Um, every choice that I've made since then towards uh, towards that goal. So um, so again, it was not a. I think a dream can be so many different things. It it, it can be very contemplative, um, a bit passive. I mean, it's not negative, but it's 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 just the the, um, the the attitude, and it can also be very active. It's something that you chase every day. Um, and and for me, my my dream was really something that I chased. I think every day since since I was a kid. Now, Pesquet is often asked, uh, how do you get selected as an astronaut? There's, there's no school to, to become an astronaut. You cannot sign up somewhere for a, for a master degree in astronauting, unfortunately. Um, and, and money can't buy you the, the, 
the degree or anything. It's just a, it's, it's like a Lego that you, that you build, you know, step by step. Um, so, so if you, if you try to look backwards, you have to, to succeed in the selection. So, um, so there's a lot of work involved. You have to be in good health, et cetera, but to be, to, to have your chances at the selection, you need to have had, you know, some things before you need to have had an academic background. You need to have had an operational experience, um, some international experience as well. So, so really, um, it's, it's a lot of small things that sometimes you don't even think about it. Um, but you, you're interested in sports and that's going to give you a good health and good physical performance and it's going to be needed for the job. Um, you like science or math or biology or whatever. And so you're going to get a degree and that's going to show that you have the, the technical understanding, um, that is needed for the job. You're going to go abroad because, because you like it, because you like to open up your, your horizon and meet people. And then you realize it's, it's going to be good for the job. So, um, so it's really every single, every single little thing that I've done, um, whether it be in my personal life or in my professional life kind of got me. And I didn't realize that at the time, but it kind of got me to that point. So every time I had a choice to make, I, I picked what I liked, but it just so happened that, uh, that I, I wasn't wrong because my dream also kind of matched what I like to do, uh, which is great because sometimes you, you, there can be a delta between the two. In my case, I was lucky enough so that there just wasn't. And uh, what does Thomas Pesquet dream about? For me, to, to dream means, I think, opening up the, the realm of possibilities. I, I don't dream much at night, uh, but I dream a lot during the day um, because I, I, I try to see what the future is going to be like. I try to to make it happen or do what I can uh, in that process to to enable the future, right? I kind of like the term, that's the best thing we can do. You can enable the future. You, do, you cannot be an obstacle. You cannot be passive. You have to try to do your best to, to make it possible. Uh, so to me, dreaming, it, it's really this. It's it's giving yourself a goal in the future, a lofty goal or or simple goal and, uh, and making it happen and uh, enabling the future. That's really what it is. When European Space Agency astronaut Thomas Pesquet made his first trip into space, he was launched from Baikonur on the Russian Soyuz. And, uh, well, what was that like? So the last, last moments before launching into space, it's, it's, it can seem sometimes um, very romantic in a way, but, but it's, so, it's, it's almost disappointing sometimes because... Um, because you've done it so many times in the in the sim, and you're very you're in an environment that is very familiar to you, so you know everything. You've done it a million times, um, so sometimes you have to really pay attention to the details that tells you it's, it's actually different. Um, what is, uh, however, a big deal is before. I mean, you 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 say goodbye to your family and things like this, and then you you drive away in the bus, and then you get to the to the to the foot of the rocket, and you've never seen the rocket before. Uh, even during training, you train on the capsule most of the time. The rocket, it's not really your part. So um, then suddenly it's right in front of you and it's its unbelievably huge. I mean, 53 meters for us, it's something that it's looks small on TV, looks small from a distance, but I can't, I can't tell you it's not small. It's like, I don't know how many stories of a building. And so I remember going on the elevator, saying goodbye to your family. And obviously you think about them and then the elevator goes up. And every 10 seconds, I thought we were, at the top of the rocket, uh, but who weren't? Uh, I was like, okay, now this time we're at the top of the rocket. Oh, 
no, we're not. I was like, we're really super high. And I was like, okay, no, this time we're, we're at the top of the rocket. Oh, no, we're not. And to me, it lasted like 10 minutes. It probably lasted one minute. But, um, but that, was my, that was my feeling. Then you get in. It's like getting, in, into, getting into a submarine. That's really like what it feels like. You can't be claustrophobic because they close big metal hatches on you and you're strapped inside. And there's just no place whatsoever. You cannot extend your legs. You cannot extend your arms. Um, you're wedged in there. Uh, you do all your checks. You do all your, all your procedures. Um, it's very, very professional because you've done it a million times. You talk to the, to the people on the ground, uh, on the radio uh, and everything. And you, you clear the milestones one by one. You test your pressure in your suit. You test all the stages of the rocket, et cetera. Um, and, then, and then there's a moment, uh, like there's 20 minutes, I guess, of margin in case something goes wrong. And, and 99% of the time, things don't go wrong. So that last 20 minutes, you have nothing to do. Absolutely nothing. Uh, you just sit and wait. Um, so it's a lot of time for obviously your mind to wander and, and think about other things. You might be in the middle of the night, you might be dead tired, you might be early morning, it depends on the launch. Um, they usually play some music for us, so you, you can give your playlist to, um, to uh, people in the control center. So for us it was very funny because uh, each one of us three picked a song, so that was going from a Russian song, um, song, uh, US song mostly for Peggy, US crew member, and then a song for me. And, and there was such a such a difference in in style and in uh, uh i don't know and in i think purpose in a way some of us wanted to be pumped up other ones wanted to be really relaxed so it was just a most random playlist you could possibly put together and then like six seven minutes before launch you, you you're being told to the ground comes online stops the music and says hey guys it's time to get ready uh you close down your helmets you strap your straps all your straps once again um we had some kind of a hand gesture between the three of us. Um, and then as you get closer, you're really watching closely. Um, and then you don't know what to expect from me. It was my first launch into space. So you get a huge, big kick. Because um, launching is like, it's oh, it's zero to 20, more than 20,000 kilometers an hour in, in eight minutes, seven, 48 minutes, seven minutes, 48 seconds. So it's more than two seconds per 100 kilometers uh sorry less than two seconds per 100 kilometer per hour uh, which is fastest than faster than the faster the fastest sorry faster than the fastest formula one uh, except you do it for eight minutes 30 seconds they do it for not even 10 seconds so it's a lot of different different physical accelerations uh you get some huge kicks when the different stages separate uh and then the, the further away you are from the ground the, the safer it gets because you know even though Something might happen, then you have time to come back. Um, and then once you get to space, your engine stops, and then everything becomes really, really, really quiet, really quiet, and then stuff starts floating in the in the capsule, and that's when you know you've uh, you've made. It. There are currently seven people aboard the space station. A normal tour for the astronauts on the International Space Station is six months. And so we wondered, what is the workload of astronauts on the space station? What are they doing? But there's a lot of this in uh, in in my um, in my field. Like every every astronaut, when he or she comes back from space, there's always there's always a slide somewhere that lists you know the records, all the firsts. Um, some of them, you know, being ridiculous sometimes. So it's kind of funny. Um, but no, everybody's got a couple. I think uh, we we it was just coincidental. I think we happened to as a crew 
um, beat the record of the most signs done in a week. I mean, it's kind of a stupid statistic, but it's something that is tracked uh, because obviously we want to make the station useful for the people on Earth. And the, the best way we can do this is to do as much research and science as we can. Um, but on the other hand, we also have to maintain the station. We also have to uh, stay in good shape. We also have to do a lot of logistics to, to only enable our presence there. So those two things are always competing against each other. Um, and then sometimes, you know, stars just align um, and then you have a wonderful week or you do just a lot of stuff. Uh, so we just happened to do it. We're very, very happy. Uh, not because you don't win anything. You don't win a medal. You don't win a prize. You don't win money. You don't, nobody's even going to thank you. Um, but, but it's a good feeling because, uh, because, you know, you feel like you've, you've really done what you were sent out there for. Um, and it's good for the people. There's been quite a few changes in the field of space flight in uh, recent months. So, Piskay was asked, uh, what is the pace of progress in manned spaceflight? If you look back, we're, we're growing very impatient, but we've been going to space for 50 years, um, which is nothing. I mean, at the scale of, of the, I mean, the history of humankind on the, on the face of the Earth, uh, it's absolutely ridiculously small. I mean, 50 years after Columbus went to, you know, to what was not yet the United States, I'm not sure nothing had happened. So, um, and yet we have a permanent uh, outpost in space. We've been to the moon. Uh, we have fleets of satellites um, observing the Earth. Um, and we're talking about going to Mars and we're building the hardware to go to Mars. So I think it's going extremely fast. It's just that people now are expecting, expecting a, a much faster pace. Um, I think there's, there's been 500 people, you know, uh, in space right now. Um, and I think in the next 10 years, there'll be, uh, I'd say, at least three or four times as much. Yes, it's, uh, I've just clocked over 600 people who have been into space. Of course, some of those people have been up more than once. Well, after these messages, Thomas Pesquet is going to take us on a tour of the International Space Station. On FM, online and on TuneIn 24-7. This is 88.3 Southern FM. And now a tour of the space station by European Space Agency astronaut Thomas Pesquet. Um, so the ISS, it's, it's like a 3D maze. Um, and, the, and the funny thing is here on the ground, on the ground, uh, here on Earth, you, you, when, you, when you cross a door, uh, through a door, then you always know you turn left or right. Things don't change because you always cross, you know, with your head up. But on the ISS, it doesn't mean anything. You can cross a hatch in, in every orientation. So left, right, up, down doesn't mean anything. Uh, you just have to use other senses, like look at the colors and, and, and kind of where the lights are. So it's a different way to, uh, uh, to just move around and, and evolve. But, but let's say now we're docking um, uh, at the, on the front of the space station. Uh, space station always, well, mostly flies in the same direction, belly facing the Earth for communication purposes, mostly, and thermal as well. Uh, so now we dock um, on the forward side of the space station. So you enter the station, uh, there's kind of a slide up because there's an angle in the docking port, and then you enter node two. We call it nodes. Nodes, those are the modules that, that actually bring together other modules. So there's several docking ports. So there's node two right there. That's where we sleep. That's where the four uh, sleeping stations are arranged, one on the um, on the ceiling, one on the deck, and two on the sides. Uh, the, we get a maintenance work area. We have, we've got a lot of stowage. Uh, that's where we charge our iPads. There's some emergency equipment. Uh, there's the, the hair clipper 
and things like this um, under the table. You know, CTB, CTB is a big Nomex bag, non-flammable, and that's kind of what we use all the time to, to store our stuff on space station. Um, if you have a cargo vehicle, it can be docked underneath, or you, you go nadir, which means down. Um, let's say today there's none. So on the left, there would be the Columbus module from the European Space Agency. It's a rather small module. There's a lot of science equipment. That's where uh, I did most of my European research during the station, during my mission, sorry. That's, that might be where I get to sleep because we might be uh, too many crew members this time and, and one of them is not going to have uh, a crew quarter. So that might be me and I'll sleep in Columbus. Uh, and if I go to the right, there's, a, there's a, what we call the GEM, Japanese Experiment Module really nice module they keep it really clean very long um there's two freezers there's lots of science racks there's um uh, robotics uh, rack that you can control robotic arm there's an airlock it's the only airlock well you know it's the only airlock for equipment on the space station um with a sliding table we can attach some payload that goes out that comes back in um and upstairs there's uh the jlp which is kind of a closet really or an attic uh just for stowage so i come back to node two straight down, go to a lab. Um, the lab is the heart of the space station where a lot of uh, the electronics are located. Lots of the computers are located. Uh, lots of science facilities as well, or, um, or a bike, weightlessness bike. There's a furnace. Uh, there's all the medical equipment. Uh, that's where we store our cameras, all our cameras, video and photo. And that's kind of where we regroup every morning uh, and every evening uh, for, uh, for our conference with, uh, with the ground. Uh, keeping down, I'm still going aft on space station. Node one, uh, not much in node one. It's our kitchen. There's a galley table, oven, fridges, uh, things like that. You can also have a cargo vehicle docked um, on the on the deck uh, port, but let's say there's none left. There's going to be our airlock. That's where we prepare a spacesuit and go out EVA. Very important module as well. Uh, but we don't use it very often. Uh, EVA is only every every once in a while. Uh, to the right is Node 3. This one's hugely important module. We have our treadmill, we have uh, our uh, weight machine, exercise equipment. Uh, we have one toilet, which is the most important item uh, of hardware on the space station. When it breaks, life stops. You fix it immediately. It's not like on the ground where you can go somewhere else. Mm -mm, you have to fix it. Um, and uh, and as the cupola, looking at the bottom. Cupola is a big octagonal window looking down at the Earth. Uh, gives you a fantastic view. Uh, and that's where people take pictures from most of the time. Uh, and then if you go to node three, come back forward, there's PMM, it's logistics modules, mostly for storage. That's uh, also kind of our, uh, uh, our bathroom where we do hygiene, we wash ourselves, we brush our teeth and things like that. Going back to node one and then straight down is the Russian uh, side of the space station built in Russia uh, based on the Mir space station design. So the first one is FGB, um, functional cargo block in US English. Um, it's mostly stowage. It has some batteries and propulsion, but it's not used anymore. So it's really, uh, it's the Russian's bathroom, loads and loads and loads of stowage. It's a very long module, long and narrow module. It's like a corridor. It's the corridor of the space station, let's say. Um, and then you get to uh, the service module, which is the heart of the station on the Russian side. Uh, one module up, one module down. Oh, sorry, I forgot one module down as well. Docking module on the FGB. One module down, the same one on the SM and one up. They serve as airlock and also as docking ports for visiting vehicles, so users. Uh, and then if you go down service module, that's where you have all the computers on the Russian side. They are treadmill, they are kitchen, they are toilet, and they are two uh, crew quarters. Um, and at the very back of the space station, there's a docking hatch where usually there's a 
cargo vehicle. So there you go. That was a bit long, but uh, but there's 13, I think, or 14 modules now. So it takes uh, it actually takes a while to uh, move around on the ISS. And sometimes even your crew members, even though it's not that that big, you don't see them for three or four days um, because everybody's at different places, very busy, and then on the phone, and then trying to do something, and then trying to catch some sleep. So so um, it's actually a huge, big laboratory. You can get lost. And that was uh, Thomas Pesquet taking us on a tour of the space station that he is actually commander of right at this very moment. And that feature came courtesy of the Carmen Project. On October the 15th, the musical group Coldplay released their much-anticipated album Music of the Spears. And thanks to uh, Peter Tolich for um, letting us know about this. It features the single Higher Power, which received its first play on the International Space Station by Tomar Pesquet on May the 21st. The song's premiere followed a conversation which took in similarities between Life on Tour by the musical group and Life on the Space Station. Let's have a listen to that conversation now. Hey. Hey, you guys. Can you Salut, hear me? Thomas. Salut. Comment ça va? Let me crank up the volume a little bit. Ça va? Wow. Talk to you. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> wow, man. We're so happy to see you. Hey, welcome to the ISS. <laughs> Thank you. Smaller than I thought. <laughs> it's actually much bigger than, than I thought when I first got here. But here you're in the cupolite or panoramic window. So, and you're lucky because it's a day pass. It could have been the middle of the night, but we're actually coming over Africa very soon. Wow. wow. What can you see from your window right now? <laughs> well, I'll show you, right? Please. This is our Dragon spacecraft over there, Doctor Station. Solar arrays on both sides. And down below, Nagy of Earth. This is the back of the station down there. Wow. Russian progress, Russian Soyuz. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. So, Tomar, I believe you're going to be on this space station for six months. How long does six months feel on a space station? I mean, thankfully, we're always busy. There's a lot of scientific experiments that we do. There's a lot of maintenance. We're going to have a couple of spacewalks and actually go out and fix the solar arrays that you see in the background, uh, maybe in June, July. So as long as you're busy, it goes really fast. And, you know, it's psychological. When you reach the, the midway the midway point, then you feel like it goes down the hill from here. Yeah. Um, and then the last month goes so fast because you start thinking about, like when you're on a tour, I'm, I'm guessing, you start thinking about coming back home, what you're going to do, you know, taking a break, seeing your loved one, um, and then it feels good to come back home. Yeah. It's, it's like being on tour, except only if we stayed on the bus for six months and didn't play any concerts. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel about Earth when you're flying above it and people? You know, it's, it's a great yeah, it's a great question. It's um, I mean, it goes without saying. From here, you don't you don't see borders, you don't see any of that. You only see rivers, mountains, and all the all those natural features. As we're flying over Senegal right now, um, and and you you tend to think that all the divisions we create are just constructions of the mind. They don't exist naturally. We just make them happen. Um, so that's that's just one thing. And then the other one that that really struck me, especially during my first mission, is it's it's amazing how small and and kind of finite and fragile the Earth is. 
um, we don't get this impression when we're on the ground because everything seems so big and you cross an ocean. It's vast. Uh, you go to mountains. It's unbelievably big. And it seems like there's no limits to it. But, but really, from space, you can clearly see it's an oasis. It's a ball. It's, it's self-contained. Everything we have is here. There's nothing else anywhere else. So you have to use your resources wisely, you have to share, you have to work together. Yeah, that's a beautiful perspective. That's how we feel too. I'm not trying to look cool, but you're supposed to wear <laughs> these when you're, when you're in a cupola. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, that, you, now you look more like a rock star than we ever did. <laughs> it's like talking with Bono. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Thomas, what happens if you feel depressed or anything? What do you do? Sometimes I like in the evenings when uh, everybody goes to bed and the station is dark, we switch the lights off. I put on my, my ear set, I play some music, and I just float. You know, you let yourself float in the station. Um, and then when you bump against something, you slowly react, and then you float in the other direction. And that's really, really cool because you, you, you feel completely free. You're, you're freed from the constraints of your body in a way. So you focus on the music yeah. you're listening to and the feeling you create. Um, and that takes your mind away from uh, your daily grind and uh, back to your loved ones or everything you want to think about that's, in, that's on the earth waiting for you. That's incredible, man. Tomar, um, I, I love watching science fiction shows that, you know, based in space. I always have done ever since I was a kid, and I, I'm sure you like watching them too. But, you know, be, being a, a real life spaceman, what is the biggest thing they get wrong in movies? What's the biggest misconception? Yeah. One of the biggest things that get wrong is when they put the spacesuits on and they go outside. So in the, the movies, it just happens like, oh, let's put a spacesuit on and go outside. <laughs> spacesuit, open the door, boom, they're outside. Um, in reality, you can't do this. It takes hours to prepare. And so if you don't breathe oxygen, if you don't purge your body, uh, your blood of the nitrogen, um, you're going to have decompression accidents just like in scuba diving. So only that takes like one hour of breathing and trying to purge your blood. Uh, and then checking your spacesuit, you know, getting it to fit correctly, preparing all the tools, uh, venting your airlock, et cetera, et cetera. It takes three, four, five hours before you can go out. So, but in the movies, obviously, it doesn't work, right? It's a plot. So <laughs> yeah. those guys just put the spacesuit on and go out. But yeah, that's one of the one of the things that make that make me cringe. If it takes four hours to get ready, how long can you be outside walking for? Your spacesuit is actually a mini self-contained spacecraft. You have uh, oxygen, you have uh, CO2 scrubbing, CO2 that you'll produce by breathing. I would poison you if you didn't scrub it. Um, you got um, electricity for for your your systems on your your radio and all the rest of it. Um, so that and you got water to keep you cool or warm. You have a you have a, your own heating system. The, based on this, it, it depends. But usually, the CO2 is limiting you, and that's going to be seven, eight-ish hours, you have a lot of oxygen. So oxygen is not going to be the problem. The problem is going to be CO2. Uh -huh. That's a long day. Um, and then as you come back in, usually you celebrate with your friends and you're happy. Hmm. Like after a gig, I guess. Yes. Yeah. And we don't play for eight hours, though. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas, have you seen any strange species out there at all? Any, any, any of our alien friends? Not no, not yet, but I, I, I keep an eye for them. Sometimes you see, you know, you see lights or you see some phenomena. It's mostly on the Earth. I've never seen anything come close. Cool. You never know. I keep looking. So, Tamar, we sent you uh, some music because right now we, we aren't able to play for anybody on Earth. So we thought we'd just play mm -hmm. for you. <laughs> 
It's, it's like our one, cool. one man concert. Thanks for that, guys. Higher power. Lots of questions. You guys have to tell me what's the story of the song and where does that come from and what whether the, the alien vibe comes from the album and all the rest of it. I think that we are right now you able to imagine alien worlds as a way of saying what we think about life on Earth. It's safer to say it about aliens than it is to say it about humans. But really, it's one big... True, very true. You know, allegory. And uh, the song is about trying to find the astronaut in all of us, the, the person that can do amazing things. Cool. Shall we play it? Yeah, man, please. This is like the premiere in the oh, whole... Right. Galaxy. The whole galaxy. <laughs> 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 Thank you, our brother. See you on Earth, Tom. Take care. Bye, bye, bye. bye. What a dude. <laughs> hey, that was amazing, man. And that conversation between Coldplay, the musical group from Britain, and Tomé Pesquet, the astronaut from France, came courtesy of the European Space Agency. So uh, the quality, as heard from the space station of that song, was absolutely shocking. So here is the hi-fi version of Coldplay's Higher Power.
speaking just to let you know Coldplay with higher power. Now, Tomo Pesquet is due to land from the International Space Station on November the 8th. He and three others will land in a Crew Dragon. Uh, before that, four replacements will go up to the space station uh, in another Crew Dragon spaceship. This is the Space Show. 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. Now, let's have our planet Earth. Earth below us, drifting, falling, floating, weightless, calling, calling home. Welcome to episode 24 of our Planet Earth series, in which we look at our home planet. Only three Australians have looked down on planet Earth from space. The first was Paul Scully Power, and the second, Andy Thomas. In the past several weeks, we have been telling you about the third, Chris Boshausen. Because of time zone differences... And it's currently about one forty in the morning in California. And because of COVID restrictions, meaning the Southern FM studios are closed for pre-recorded interviews, the Space Show has not sought our own interview with Chris. Now, here is a part of what Chris said about seeing planet Earth from space when speaking to the ABC. Well, it's amazing because I worked in the space industry my whole life and I was worried when I went up, it'd be jaded or that I'd, you know, I'd be desensitized to it. But it was more beautiful and more dazzling than I could ever have imagined. I'm even struggling to find the words to describe to people because it was, it was just the most brilliant blue thing I've ever seen, the earth and the atmosphere. Um, I struggle to find the words to, to tell you how amazing it was. There were some differences, yeah. Um, I was surprised how bright the atmosphere is. It was, to me, it looked like a brilliant sapphire or something hanging, like a, sh- a sapphire shield over the earth. And, you know, if you look at like a photo, like the one behind me, it's just usually, you know, in photos, it comes across as like a, a blue gradient and it doesn't do it justice at all. At all. The other crazy thing is when you're out at, at 100, 106 kilometers, I think, where we were, um, which is the, you know, just above the edge of space, you can see all around you about 1,200 kilometers in every direction. So you have like a 2,400-kilometer cone underneath you, which you can see that much of the Earth in one go. And I think our primitive human brains aren't designed to look at that. So it was really spooky and, and almost um, like almost felt like an out-of-body experience to, to be able to see the world in that context. 
Well, actually, the, the thing that really excited me was the space part and looking out into the blackness of space. It was the blackest black as well. What was amazing is all these colors I'd never seen before. You know, on Earth, through filtered through the atmosphere, the sunlight is not the same as it is up there. And so space was very, very black, blacker than the blackest paint we've ever made. And I'd never seen that color or not color before. And for me, I felt just this pull, almost like a visceral pull from my chest out into space saying, this is where we belong. And, and um, I think it's kind of, for me, reaffirmed my knowledge of myself that I'm a space guy and I, I want to go again. I want to go back and I want to go further and deeper into space. Uh, Chris Bothausen is one of the founders of a company originally called Planet Labs, but now called Planet. In 2013, he spoke in San Francisco at a TEDx function, and he spoke about seeing the Earth from space. Well, the Earth has seen from space, so he hadn't seen it himself at that time. Uh, how he tested a mobile phone satellite called PhoneSat, the Dove satellites that uh, his company was just beginning to launch at that time, the excitement of getting the first image, and an ambition to map the entire Earth. So this picture I think you may have all seen before. It's called the Blue Marble. And in fact, NASA archivist Mike Gentry has speculated it is probably the most published image in human history. Um, this image was taken by the astronauts of Apollo 17 on their way to the moon in 1972. It wasn't the first full frame image of the Earth but it was the first high-resolution image of the, of the Earth completely illuminated because they were flying into the sun. So as they looked back, they saw the whole Earth. And it was also published in a time of, of a re, during a resurgence of environmental awareness. Really, it was the start of the Green Movement. And this image became the poster child of the Green, of the green Movement and the environmental movements. And it, if, you look, you know, if you Google image of Earth, watch a movie that has a picture of Earth, I'm almost certain it will be this image. However, if you think about mapping today and the world as we know it, we understand the Earth a little bit, but we don't really know what we're doing. If you think about this picture, the one pixel blue line is the atmosphere. That's the sense of the fragility of our planet. That was sort of the awareness people got in the 70s and the early 80s with this picture. But wouldn't it be good if we could get that all the time? have that feeling of like, wow, this is our Earth. This is what we're doing to it. But if you look at maps today, we have all of these great things like Google, Map, Google Maps and Mapbox and Bing Maps and, and so on, you know, Google Street View. But how many people have a house that hasn't been updated on the maps for years, right? It's, maps are out of date. In fact, the average age of Google Maps is about 36 months. And there are images there that are over 10 years old. So I just want to tell you about a company that I've started working on to solve this problem, and also a little bit about the story of how we chose to solve this, how to solve this really big problem, and what the small devices were in the end that are going to enable us to do that. So when I was at NASA, my mentor there, Pete Klupa, used to pull his phone out of his pocket and wave it at people and go, why are spacecraft so expensive? You know, why are, they, why are the computers 20 years old? Why is the camera on, on the Mars rover only two megapixels? My, my smartphone is better than your spacecraft. <laughs> he, he would put it back in his pocket, though. And so one day, some colleagues and I decided, let's take him up on that challenge. 
So the first thing we decided to do was try and break some phones. And so this is a, this is a, a smartphone in a vacuum chamber. We wanted to know if they would work in space. First test, do they work in, in a vacuum? So it turns out most of the electronics in modern consumer devices today are pretty much made in very sterile vacuum-like conditions anyway. A lot of them are actually made in a vacuum. So in a sense, this was just like going home for the phone. So here this phone is at 10 to the minus 6 tor, which is almost the vacuum of space, and it was just fine. It just kept working. So we ran back with this result, and we're like, it works. It's crazy, but it works. Um, so we thought we were onto something. The next thing was, well, okay, um, you know, how tough are these things? So we put some on some rockets. Now, the first rocket that we put it on had a bit of a failure, and the parachute came out on the way up. And so suddenly the rocket turned around and parachute ripped off, the rocket broke into pieces, came back into the ground, hit the desert. Um, we dug it out of a six foot deep hole with shovels. There were a couple of experiments in there. The biggest was about this long. It had compressed down to about that big in the impact and had landed on the phone. But the phone was still working. So if you think about it, this is not really surprising because phones are designed to be handled by very, very clumsy humans. And so phones are tough. And in fact, I used to get my phone and prove it by bouncing it like a tennis ball off three walls. And it would usually work, but after about a thousand times, it finally died. But phones are tough, and they can launch and survive rocket rides. And uh, if... So this data was taken with the sensor that was in the phone and the video as well. So we had a neat little package. If you think about it, phones are great. They have computers, they have storage, they have sensors, they have radios, all these kinds of really neat things you might need for a spacecraft. So we thought about building one. And there are these neat things that were invented about 10 years ago called CubeSats, which are 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter cubes that fit into a standard pod on a rocket. And they just get pushed out with a spring. So we put a phone inside one of these boxes with some extra batteries and attached in yellow you can see another antenna. And just for scale, it really isn't much bigger than a coffee mug. And when I say put a phone in, I literally mean put a phone inside. <laughs> so this is just a Perspex model to show you really what was inside. We ended up using a few more batteries, all this empty space here we packed with batteries. Um, but it was a phone and in fact it was just a, a complete phone with the screen and everything, and we just built a little USB connector to run charging to the batteries and connect to the radio. So uh, we called this PhoneSat. And uh, in April this year, we launched some into space. This is actually a picture of the phone attached to a balloon in a pre-launch test that we did. Um, and so this is the PhoneSat. You can actually see just up, up in the top, you can see the, the angle of the phone there and a lot of the green batteries and the antenna. So this was a pre-flight balloon test we did to see if we could actually communicate with the thing. And then in April, launched them. Um, this was really fun because what we did was we decided not only did we want to test these phones, we wanted to get the message out to a lot of people. And so instead of using one NASA ground station to get the data, we crowdsourced the delivery of all of this data. And so we chopped the images up into thousands of tiny little blocks, 200 bytes long, and sent each block down, which was actually an image that you could view. It was a, it was a complete viewable image, correct file format, but it was only 200 bytes in length. And we sent them, we radiated them over the whole earth, just beaconing them out, like little messages, messages in bottles. And we had about 40 people around the planet who had ham radio gear pick these up and email back the packets 
so that we could reassemble the image. So at this point, we thought we were really onto something. We had a cheap system, we could take photos, but we wanted to do better than this. So maybe a phone wasn't exactly the right thing, but there had to be something that would help us solve this problem of building scalable, cheap computing systems that could help us map the Earth better. So the first thing we needed to do was improve the camera, and we also wanted to make some upgrades to the electronics. Phones aren't great for connecting because you only have really one port, so we needed a generalized computer that we could connect a lot of things to. So we graduated from phones and built this. And this is what we call Dove. The reason why it's called Dove is because a lot of spacecraft often have really, I guess, aggressive names like Talon and Raptor. But we wanted something that was kind of a bit more fun and peaceful, you know? So our intention is to launch a flock of doves into space and map the Earth. The key component is a super high resolution camera. We have, a, we have an industrial grade robotics camera at the back that actually connects to a computer over Ethernet. And the entire spacecraft can be accessed via the web from the ground. Some people would call this a satellite. I actually just call it a webcam in space. So what we'd like to, so then what we wanted to do was we wanted to launch some of these. So we actually purchased two launch vehicles, um, one out of the United States from uh, Orbital Sciences Corp, the new Antares launch vehicle, and also a Soyuz in Russia. We hoped to space these apart by about six months so that we could launch one, and then in the sort of spirit of Silicon Valley, iterate, release early, release often, and iterate a second time on the Soyuz. But what happened was the schedule slipped, and over a two-year period, these two launches ended up being three days apart. <laughs> but it gets better. The Soyuz launched first. And we were attached to the capsule, that, that, of which the Russians were using for, for a variety of science experiments. And we were going to stay in orbit for three days until they released us. So what happened in the end was while we were in our mission control center, waiting for the first pass of Dove 2 to go overhead, Dove 1 launched within seconds. And the engineering team were watching the screens, watching the webcast from, from Virginia of the Antares' maiden flight. And I'm like, guys, <laughs> like, we got 20 seconds. And we actually got to see the thing go all the way up to first stage separation. And then we switched back. And we contacted Dove 2 on its first pass, um, which was really exciting. I mean, you had to be there. But it was just so crazy to see those two events converge over a two-year period down to seconds. And so then what did we get? So we got this. It was about 4 o'clock in the morning. And we were downloading the pictures over FTP, as you do from a webcam in space. And uh, I emailed it to my two co-founders, just saying, you know, we have a picture. So one of them, Will, woke up at about 6 in the morning, read his email. And apparently, he tells me he stayed in bed for three hours crying, looking at this picture. He was so moved by what we'd, actually, we'd been able to capture with this spacecraft. So this was you know, really exciting to the whole team as well, because forests, forests and, and managing deforestation and managing resources on the planet is one of our key issues that we'd like to address. And so this picture really nailed our first use case. And in fact, if you compare this photo to photos that are online now, you can actually see where certain trees have been removed. And so one thing I'd like to be able to do is count every tree on the planet. I think that'd be really neat to do. Um, following that, we're like, what next? This is the problem statement at the moment. 
maps are infrequent. Satellites, really big ones, are kind of like point-and-shoot cameras. They're like, wow, there's something interesting. Let's take a look at that. Next orbit, hey, I want to look at that thing again. When you're pointing and shooting, you're missing other stuff. What would happen if we could launch enough spacecraft that we could map continuously all the time? And so that's what we're proposing to do. So yesterday morning at 7 a.m., I delivered 28 spacecraft to Houston for launch in the space. And uh, we're hoping by next year, when the satellites are commissioned and operational, to be providing complete coverage of the planet, and every quarter to provide an updated base map of what our planet looks like. In the eight years since giving that talk, Chris Bosshausen's company Planet has forged ahead. It has now built and successfully deployed 450 satellites, of which more than 200 are currently operating. The company says it is imaging over 350 million square kilometres of our planet each day. Given that Australia has a land area of 7.7 million square kilometres, that is like imaging the whole of Australia at incredibly high resolution 45 times every day. This is planet Earth. You're looking at planet Earth. Bop, 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 bop. This is planet Earth. Our space show newshound Michael Abdilla reports that Western Australia's first homegrown satellite, BNR-1, has made first contact with ground control at Curtin University. This comes more than two weeks after it was deployed into low Earth orbit from the International Space Station. BNR-1 was coded and built from scratch by staff and students at Curtin University's Space Science and Technology Centre. Now that BNO-1 is communicating, the team is now focused on testing commands and collecting data. BNA Program Manager Ben Hartig said that after a few anxious weeks, the team was both ecstatic and relieved to make contact with BNO-1 for the first time. He offered no explanation as to why it had taken so long to make contact. Well, this has been The Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie. We'll be back next week with a space show, more about planet Earth and uh, whatever else is going on in space. <laughs>